Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexuality that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It was December 6, 1978. All was quiet as evening fell over the city of London. The Christmas season had just begun. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men was proclaimed and felt all across the city. Even in the working-class South London neighborhood of Streatham, there was a palpable sense of holiday cheer. But behind closed doors, another sort of cheer was underway. It emanated from inside one particular house on Ambleside Avenue. There wasn't anything noticeable about the place. Streatham was a rather anonymous area of the city, with rows of houses all blending together. But if that was the case, why did police squad cars suddenly converge on Ambleside Avenue on such a quiet evening? Why were they zeroing in on this humble homestead in a forgotten corner of London? The answer to these questions all centered on the home's owner, one middle-aged woman named Cynthia Payne. After all, inside Cynthia Payne's house, Something quite unusual was happening. It was filled to the brim with men and women, all of them at least half-naked. At just that moment, a few women were escorting dumbstruck men upstairs, while a few more put on a more public display of affection in the living room. And presiding over it all was Cynthia Payne, with a drink in hand and a smile on her face. Cynthia Payne a friendly neighbor, a loving mother, a competent businesswoman, and, in the eyes of the law, a brothel owner. Tonight, the law had finally come for her. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original show. 
each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. First, we'll follow the police as they gathered evidence and testimony to build a case and charge a suspect. In our next episode, we'll see that evidence play out in the courtroom and understand how the jury reached their verdict. This week, we're examining the 1978 arrest of London brothel operator Cynthia Payne. We'll look at the origins of her business practice, her very particular and ingenious methods of operating a clandestine brothel, and how it all came toppling down during a fateful police raid. Next week, we'll follow the various criminal trials that would result from this arrest, as well as the great socio-political debate stirred up by this provocative woman in a buttoned-up time. In this case, the court of law and the court of public opinion came to a head, bringing into question the entire framework of Britain's sex work laws. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. This sordid saga all began when Cynthia Payne was born on December 24, 1932. 46 years before the Christmas raid on her brothel in the seaside resort town of Bogner Regis, far south from the city she would one day call her own. Cynthia's mother died in 1943, leaving the 10-year-old Cynthia and her sister Melanie in the care of their father, Hamilton. The only problem was that Hamilton was often absent, going away on business trips and other ventures. Even when the girl's mother was alive, he was a rather cold and distant parent, and he saw no reason to change now that she had passed on. As he traveled constantly, Hamilton entrusted the care of his daughters to housekeepers and school teachers. Between 1944 and 1948, Cynthia was shuffled from school to school, never able to fit in or behave herself. Instead of paying attention in class, the 13-year-old Cynthia liked to read. However, her choice of reading content was always one thing in particular. At the time, they were known as the Boys' Weeklies. These serial publications were precursors to both the comic book and the Lad magazine. They were full of schoolboy stories, all mischief, pranks, and tales from a socioeconomic level unseen to children of the working class like Cynthia. Speaking to her own biographer, Paul Bailey, for his profile, An English Madam, Payne recalls herself as a true tomboy. Quote, I liked to shock people. I liked to wake them up. End quote. But what really grabbed Cynthia's attention was these stories' approach to sexuality. In her biography, she remembers one issue that really confounded her— one of the stories concluded with a very chaste kiss between the protagonist and his crush. But then, in the next week's issue, the female character had suddenly become pregnant. Cynthia had no idea what to make of this. No one around her, either at home or in school, ever spoke about sex. 
She didn't know the first thing about it, but from that point forward, she became obsessed with unraveling its mysteries as she came of age during the 1950s. Although, to the great disappointment of her father, Hamilton, she could hold down neither a trade school education nor a job, she still experienced a vast social education. Due to her curiosity, Cynthia's personality was full of life and verve. Unfortunately, it also brought undue attention onto the young woman. At 17 years old in 1949, Cynthia began a relationship with a 40-year-old man. As he was married, the man only used her for sex. Cynthia later related that this was the beginning of her habit of chasing after sex as a means toward affection, even though it seldom led there. But the passionate young woman couldn't help herself, and it often led her to despair. In 1952, Cynthia gave birth to her first child, Dominic. She didn't have enough money to raise him herself, so she had to give him up to another woman, though she always remained in contact. Cynthia had a miscarriage from another affair in 1953 and had to put another child up for adoption in 1954, but this time she lost contact with her child. In 1955, Cynthia fell into her most dangerous love affair yet, with a charming con man named Sam. He was a stubborn and cruel man who refused to use contraceptives. Cynthia went through three abortions due to Sam's negligence, and one of them nearly took her life. After this, Sam promised he would never get her pregnant again, but her love for him was gone. Cynthia felt used and left behind by love in general. She took work as a waitress and made it through the back half of the 1950s, supported by a wealthy man named Joss. Joss didn't want Cynthia for sex, just for her vivacious company. Through Joss, Cynthia experienced the higher-class life she used to read about in her weeklies. Weekend drives in Joss's Bentley, fancy dinner parties where Cynthia learned the ins and outs of hosting and fine dining beyond her wildest dreams. Yet she never felt a part of this world. She was always a step removed, and she broke off her relationship to Joss in the 1960s. Cynthia needed to find her own way, even if it meant living destitute once again. But this was when destiny intervened. One evening, sometime in the early 1960s, Cynthia met a young female customer during a waitressing shift who asked if she could rent out Cynthia's flat for the rest of the night. Cynthia realized this girl was a sex worker, but she wasn't put off at all. In one night, thanks to this girl's payment, Cynthia would make as much as she usually did in an entire week waitressing. Cynthia accepted the offer and then decided to make a business out of it. She would rent a flat for 10 pounds and then charge a sex worker 20 pounds to use it. After three months of this, Cynthia had acquired enough money to rent out four flats simultaneously. Now, it is important to give some context on the social and political climate at the time. Sex work in Britain had always been legal. Of course, the sex workers themselves were always looked down upon. 
Only loose women without morals would ever resort to such a practice, so in turn, they deserved little respect. This stigma began to become more literalized in Britain in 1956, when Parliament decided to take action against the sex work industry. Even if the public would never support a full ban, some legislators saw a way around this. Instead of making the work itself illegal, they would criminalize the infrastructure that supported the sex workers. This was the legal foundation that would someday be utilized against Cynthia Payne. The first form this took was the Sexual Offenses Act of 1956. This law made it illegal to own and operate a brothel. If one imagines a brothel as a dingy and exploitative place, this might make sense. However, the Sexual Offenses Act went further and defined a brothel as any residence where more than one woman operated as a sex worker. In 1959, this was joined with the Street Offenses Act. To quote Donald Sorrell Thomas's Villain's Paradise, a history of Britain's underworld, the Street Offenses Act of 1959 sought to prevent the public nuisance of having sex workers on the pavements and thereby turned most of them into call girls. The mass availability of the telephone, as much as moral determination by the authorities, made the change possible. Fines of £60 for pavement soliciting and possible imprisonment under the new law accelerated it. In other words, these laws did nothing to stop the practice of sex work. All they did was force it deeper undercover and force the sex workers themselves into more dangerous situations. If a sex worker could not work on the streets and could only operate by themselves, they were opening themselves up to much greater risk and exploitation. This was not a solution. It was only an ineffective moral band-aid. So, as Cynthia began renting out flats in the 1960s, per the Sexual Offenses Act of 1956, she was also most definitely breaking the law. She had to bribe suspicious landlords to keep them quiet, and the sex workers were often late on their own payments. To keep up, Cynthia had to take her own job in the sex industry as a maid to a madam running her own full brothel. It was here that Cynthia first realized that there were other services to offer clients outside of traditional sex, namely more taboo subjects like bondage and cross-dressing. After Cynthia herself was forced to sleep with a landlord to keep a roof over her head, she realized something. If she was going to be a sex worker, she wanted to be in control of her life and her safety. She'd had enough abusive relationships outside of such a dangerous industry. Cynthia Payne was going to take charge. And if others were going to use sex to create despair, she was going to use it to make people happier. She began by putting her name into the underground newsletters known as call lists. Cynthia moved from flat to flat to keep her true business hidden. She also began collaborating with a sex worker named Janet, who specialized in bondage and domination. Much to Cynthia's surprise, she found a lot of satisfaction in this type of work, and perhaps even more surprisingly to her, a vast and satisfiable customer base looking for just this type of service. 
This included some high-paying clientele made up of lawyers, doctors, professors, and even members of parliament. Soon enough, sometime around 1974 or 1975, Cynthia had saved enough to buy her own home, so she wouldn't be under the thrall of any landlord and could operate with a little less fear of discovery. She acquired the house on Ambleside Avenue that became known as Cranmore. As she told her biographer Paul Bailey, in typical Cynthia fashion, full of wit and innuendo, quote, Now I could run the brothel of my dreams. I fell in love with the place instantly. I went from room to room, thinking to myself what bloody wonderful parties I'd be able to give. In the summer, the clients could take their drinks into the garden. Oh, it would be so civilized after the cramped conditions I was used to working in. I was terribly excited at the thought of running a knocking shop in that posh suburban street." End quote. To Cynthia, this all seemed to be running along smoothly. She developed a reliable group of workers, mostly part-timers, who often came from respectable backgrounds and families, and a whisper network of advertising that kept her parties and income flowing for years. But in the waning months of summer 1978, an anonymous tip reached the London police. This woman from Streatham was not who she appeared to be. There was a criminal on Ambleside Avenue. Coming up, the police take a keen interest in finding out just what lies inside Cynthia Payne's home. And we'll get a first-hand look at one of her legendary parties and its many colorful attendees. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In early September 1978, Chief Superintendent Reginald Searles of the London Metropolitan Police called a meeting to order in his office. They had just received a strange lead from an anonymous source claiming that a house of depravity and disorder was operating right under their noses. And depravity and disorder were two things that Chief Superintendent Searles would not abide. Yet so far, it seemed utterly unbelievable to Searles and his men. This tip claimed that a woman named Cynthia Payne, who lived in a house known as Cranmore on a sleepy street, was the madam of a high-traffic brothel. Searles just could not fathom that someone would be able to pull this off without causing a neighborhood uproar. But this was another example of how the authorities misunderstood the sex work industry. It wasn't always disruptive, and it wasn't always obvious. 
In fact, ever since the laws changed so drastically in 1953, the undercover skills of the best sex workers had only improved. Take it from Cynthia herself, when she addressed the issue of keeping the neighborhood peace in her biography, quote, I had to be cautious when I moved to Streatham, find out the lie of the land. I had to pass myself off as respectable. The neighbors never had a bloody clue. I was that discreet. I used to give my sex parties at lunchtime when the other women in the road were busy in their kitchens. I spaced them out to start with, and then I gave them on every other month. I told the people living on either side of me that I liked to hold a business conference. They really believed I was a businesswoman. I was, of course, but not in the way they thought. End quote. Cynthia was a professional, and so, to those around her, she seemed completely legitimate. Furthermore, in another clever attempt to maintain this sheen of respectability, she came up with a very unique payment scheme. Her clients didn't pay for sex with cash. Instead, they utilized a very British alternative. It was something that also called back to Cynthia's childhood in a working-class society. In 1946, the British government instituted something called the Luncheon Voucher Scheme. These small paper slips were a form of welfare for the poor. Worth a little less than three pounds apiece, companies would print a large amount and work out deals with local restaurants, so their workers could dine out and the company itself wouldn't have to provide food for their employees. Ostensibly, the British government claimed this was a system designed to help the British working class eat more healthily. However, its value never increased past 15 pence, even into the 21st century. Despite the establishment of the nationwide Luncheon Voucher Company in 1955, which standardized these vouchers across the country, they remained yet another example of half-hearted government intervention into public problems. By 2013, their value still hovered below three pounds, or about four dollars, monumentally less useful in the modern day. That said, in the mid-20th century, this small sum was valuable to female workers like Cynthia. According to a Vice article, the average woman's weekly wage was just over three pounds, while men earned almost twice the amount. Cynthia was certainly earning far less than that when she started to work. This is all to say that Cynthia was quite familiar with the voucher system when she began running her Cranmore House brothel in the 1970s. Despite the vouchers becoming a bit of a national joke over the years, she was about to award these nearly worthless paper slips their greatest and most lasting fame. Not for the purchase of food, but an entirely different service. The process all began at Cynthia Payne's front door, where guests were met by the smiling madam herself, who guided them inside with a hand on their shoulder. In exchange for 25 pounds paid to Cynthia directly, each client received the exact same service. Food and drink would be provided for as long as they wished to stay, most of it made and poured by Cynthia. Her specialty? Poached eggs on toast and a cup of tea. She thought it the perfect food to recharge the body for the rest of the party's events. Then the new arrivals were shuffled into the living room to join the rest of the guests. 
The price of admission also purchased the chance to see one of Cynthia's many acquired reels of adult film projected up for all to see. After the film, Cynthia called forward two of her sex workers, who would then engage in a live, public show. Finally, after a guest moved through each room in Cynthia's gaudy downstairs, exhausting their purchased services, the madam would again approach and hand over a luncheon voucher. The clients would then line up along the staircase to Cynthia's second floor, voucher grasped in hand, and wait for one of the women to come by. The client would hand over the voucher and go upstairs for a more private experience. While Cynthia was under no illusion that she wasn't running a sex operation, she saw the practice in a much more freeing light. While some of her workers were indeed full-time sex workers, more and more of the women involved came from different arenas entirely. Perhaps they came along with their husbands to see what the fuss was about, or even out of sheer interest. Just as the male clientele included many men of the so-called respectable class, Many of the women working at Cynthia's were schoolteachers, stay-at-home mothers, nurses, secretaries. All were welcome to explore their kinkier sides. What was not allowed were young patrons. Cynthia set an age limit for those who hoped to join her personal luncheon voucher program. To quote her directly, I've always been fond of the elderly. I came to the conclusion that my brothel was going to cater for the needs of old men. I didn't rule out younger blokes, but I set the minimum age at 40. I used to give a special three-pound discount to old-age pensioners. There aren't many brothels that offer that kind of service. With her very specific rules and practice, Cynthia Payne's operation was indeed like no other— Older men and practicing women alike felt more comfortable and open than in other such establishments. Cynthia couldn't believe the type of people who began to join her. She met MPs from Parliament who loved nothing more than getting tied up, rough-hewn businessmen who wanted to express their more feminine side, and buttoned-up housewives who liked to try more domination-focused practices on for size. And then there was Robert Mitchell Smith, a former member of the Royal Air Force. As a squadron leader and pilot instructor, Smith was the prototypical example of the type of British man who would never be caught at such an event. Happily married for years, he deeply loved his wife and never strayed. He did his public service with staunch commitment and was a leader of men. But in his later years, after his wife passed away, a long-repressed side of Smith emerged. For all his life, Smith had harbored a secret. He was bisexual and curious about the lifestyle of cross-dressing. Yet he had never had a safe space to explore this side of himself until Cranmore House came into his life. During those peak years of operation, in the mid-1970s, Smith became one of Cynthia's most devoted clients and closest friends. Allowed to finally be himself, Smith broke free of the expectations he had lived up to for so long, and he claimed a youthful vitality returned to his remaining years. 
He told Payne's biographer, Bailey, that he owed it all to Cynthia Payne. The two became very close, perhaps the closest Cynthia Payne ever came to a proper relationship. Smith even lived for long periods of time alongside her in Cranmore. It was their sanctuary. But perhaps the most surprising visitor, in Cynthia's eyes, was someone much closer to home, her father, Hamilton. After years of frigid communication, Cynthia's aging father began to thaw in his elder years. She knew he was lonely, and he knew her line of work. Hamilton opened himself up to his daughter and asked for her help. Soon enough, he was a regular attendee at his daughter's events, having his horizons broadened in every sense of the word. Cynthia believed that she made him happy in the waning years of his life. She told biographer Bailey that, quote, the two of us became as close as we ever could be. At the end of every party, Cynthia collected the luncheon vouchers from her sex workers and paid them from the collected pool of money she gathered through the evening. Clients left well-fed, satisfied, and, most importantly to Cynthia, happy. She began to see this as her purpose in work and life, and as evidenced by the lack of complaints from attendees and neighbors alike, no one was being harmed here. Cynthia held parties just like this for most of the 1970s. They reached their peak once she purchased the Cranmore House around 1975. For three years, all seemed well in her world. But just outside of her perception, something had gone wrong. Spurred on by the anonymous tip, Superintendent Searle's curiosity got the better of him, and on September 15, 1978, he ordered a squad car over to Ambleside Avenue to observe the comings and goings from Cranmore House. It was time to determine if this 46-year-old woman had truly been fooling the Metropolitan Police Department. The stakeout for Cynthia Payne began in earnest. Coming up, we'll follow the 12 days of police observation that would lead to the downfall of Cynthia Payne's brothel and to the start of a national scandal that divided public opinion for years to come. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. 
It was September 15, 1978, and the clock had just passed noon. A few officers sat in their unmarked car, disguised in street clothes, keeping a keen eye on Cynthia Payne's home. Superintendent Searle's instructions were clear. They were not to interfere or reveal themselves in any case. They weren't to question the neighbors. They weren't, of course, to knock on the door themselves. After all, the Metropolitan Police would lose face if they admitted to letting an unauthorized brothel exist in the neighborhood they were sworn to control. So, for now, they were here to observe. That was going to be their weapon of choice. Patience. The stakeout would last for 12 days. Each morning, the officers arrived at the same time, long before anyone was out on the streets. And each day, as the daily traffic passed by and the neighborhood came to life, they kept their eyes locked on the Cranmore front door. Any person who came in or out was counted. They quickly became familiar with the figure of Cynthia Payne herself, matronly in garb, a bit short in stature, and with a fluff of brown hair on her head. In and out, in and out, the officers dutifully noted each figure growing more concerned and more surprised. They noticed that these guests were quite well-dressed and well-mannered. These didn't appear as stereotypical Johns or sex workers. These just looked like everyday people. But after 12 days, it was clear. Something was going on inside that house. Over that time period, 50 women had crossed the threshold of Cranmore House and nearly 250 men. Not even the most successful businesswoman could have that many business meetings. But still, two weeks deep, the officers had no real proof or solid evidence they could bring back to Searles. They couldn't fail him, especially now that they were certain this woman was hiding nefarious activity in plain sight. But just as hope was waning, something caught their eye. A woman had just exited the house from around back. She was carrying a few bags of trash, taking them to the bins out front. And then it struck the officers. That wasn't a woman. It was a man dressed in clothes traditionally reserved for women. Although they didn't know it yet, that was Air Force Squadron Leader Robert Mitchell Smith. When Smith returned inside, the officers took their chance. They ran to the bins and searched through the trash of Cranmore House. Little did they know that above them, from her second-story window, Cynthia Payne watched this all play out with a slight smile on her face. Sure, she knew they were most likely police, but they wouldn't find anything. All potentially incriminating material, from condoms to broken sex toys to photographs and film reels, were never thrown out in the main trash. Cynthia burned all of that down below in the boiler room. So let them search. She was a careful woman, and in her mind, she was doing nothing wrong. But the police weren't going to let go of this so easily. What had been thrown out was a huge quantity of empty bottles of alcohol. They documented the refuse and returned to Searles. For the superintendent, this was proof enough that the woman inside was throwing parties. 
and based off of the initial tip and their sighting of Robert Mitchell Smith, they were reasonably certain that these parties were not the type sanctioned under the law. In mid-September 1978, Searles made the call and issued a search warrant. They would raid Cranmore House and put an end to this woman's business. But they had to wait for the right moment. They couldn't just bust in on any afternoon. So Searles continued observation of the property. On a day when an unusually large number of people entered Cynthia's home, the police would strike. That day finally arrived, almost three months later, on December 6, 1978. After nearly nine weeks of observation, the Metropolitan Police got their chance. By late afternoon, the waiting officers observed over 50 different men enter Cranmore. Searles' decision came down the line. Today was the day. Officers approached the house and knocked. Cynthia Payne asked who it was, and the arresting sergeant told her that he had a warrant to search the premises. Cynthia opened the door, but it was still closed on the security chain. As soon as Cynthia saw it was the police, she slammed the door shut. The constable and sergeant at the lead of the raid took this as a sign of resistance, so they bashed into the door and broke it down. The police saw everything. One group of half-naked clients sitting in the lounge, one of the scheduled live sex shows had just ended. The sex workers were caught, dumbstruck by the cops. Others stood lined up on the stairs, unsure whether to flee or submit to their fate. Upstairs, the sound of the private activities slowly died out as they realized something was happening. The police bounded upstairs and entered the closed rooms, finding a coupling in each one. However, the mood was almost indignant. In fact, one particular client refused to stop having sex. The police were caught off guard by their attitudes. Cynthia Payne truly was the madam of a house of sin. The police kept everyone wrangled inside. They collected the names of as many as they could find, compiling a list that would soon become the subject of front-page gossip. They discovered lubricants, condoms, and a plethora of sex toys. One officer confronted Cynthia upon finding a particular device. She recalled the scene to her biographer, Bailey, with a laugh. The officer asked, what is this? Cynthia replied, you're a man, you know what it is. The police seized Cynthia's massive vouchers. She simply told them, they're my luncheon vouchers. They're for my gentlemen to satisfy their appetites. As the raid came to a close and the attendees were rounded up to be brought to the station, neighbors poured out of their homes, surprised to see the cycling colors of police lights flashing in the evening sky. They were even more surprised to see Cynthia Payne escorted out by the police. But now the door to Cranmore House had been busted open. You could step inside, past the busted door. You could look around and see toppled party glasses and a sea of officers and half-naked partygoers. Finally, you might enter the homey kitchen where a tea kettle boiled for a round of evening drinks that would never arrive. 
If you took a moment to pour yourself a glass, your eyes might then fall on the sign that Cynthia kept on her wall, as some might keep a Bible verse or an old folk saying. The sign read, My house is clean enough to be healthy and dirty enough to be happy. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with our next episode on Cynthia Payne. We'll cover the two criminal trials that would consume the next decade of her life and the public gossip firestorm that followed in their wake. We'll see how Cynthia's defense team tried to prove her a hero of the public and how the prosecution attempted to destroy her claims of morality. As her celebrity grew across all of Britain, Payne's trials led to a full-scale reconsideration of the laws regarding the sex work industry and revealed just how behind the times the authorities had become. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Was Cynthia Payne's business truly a threat to public health and societal morality? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Jack Bentel. I'm Vanessa Richardson.